0: It was a full yeah. and frank discussion in which all aspects of the film were covered. <laughs>
1: yeah, yes. Okay. I might I might put that on the intro sequence with the music there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to the fourth in TMR's film, or is it movie? Never sure. Uh, Film or movie roundtable series, for which we welcome once again none other than the dynamic duo, (laughs) uh, our good friends Frank Johnson and Mark Campbell. Uh, who joined us a few weeks ago to talk about Brotherhood of the Bell, and then the 1966 Batman movie, and then, of course, Frank was joined by GK of Like Flint Radio, another dynamic duo, indeed, to chat about the movie Twelve Monkeys. But today, the fourth in this particular series, we're going to be talking about a film that has some trivial personal significance for me which no doubt we're going to be talking about in a minute Um, a film which I personally think is fascinating I think it's genuinely thought-provoking somewhat intellectually unsatisfying perhaps in the end Um, a film from 1969 called The Illustrated Man starring Rod Steiger, Claire Bloom and Robert Drivers and it's based upon a short collection of stories by the same title by ray bradbury from 1951 so that's what we're going to be talking about today and all the related matters that pop into our minds as we go along gentlemen welcome back to the tmr movie or film roundtable
2: thanks for having me julian i think this week you can say it's a film because it's maybe has some more artistic things to pick apart
0: (laughs) yeah thanks for having me on as well julian and i agree with frank
1: <laughs> <laughs> although I noticed you call it Bowler and Fez Film Review, you don't call it movie review. I just wondered if you would have gone for movie review to attract US audience.
0: Well, I did try and change the title once and it didn't make a significant difference to my subscribers, so I've left it at film because I'm British yes very good <laughs> really good so yeah go.
1: yes. yeah oh well throughout this i'm going to alternate between the two uh just because it seems quite natural now to call it both yeah um so anyway so how are things going with you two in your various places in this uh lockdown world
2: uh on, frankie first yeah for me uh it seems things in california are lightening up a little bit um i was telling mark earlier our, our governor wants to keep things locked down another three months but We've hit the day where they said they were going to open everything up. Not everything is opening up, but I think people are kind of chomping at the bit to get opened up and get back to normal. But then you have, like, another crowd that kind of doesn't want to get back to normal. They just think, oh, you need to save lives. But it's like, well, you know. (laughs) Sounds like you've got a civil
1: war brewing there.
2: It feels like it in some ways, yeah.
1: Mm. Mark, what's it like over there in
0: London? Well, kind of similar, I think. Mm. We went out for a walk yesterday and today and there is much much busier out there as it were because we've just come out of this very strict lockdown into a rather confusing situation where it's a sort of semi-lockdown tennis courts are open and and uh, play areas are open etc but um you know the boris johnson said you have to go to work if you can't work at home but don't use the public transport which is difficult for a lot of people (laughs) who especially live in london anywhere actually so what do you do if the shop you work in is open but you don't want to use the public transport? It's an odd situation. Mm. But there has to be a balance at some point between restarting civilization as we know it. Yeah, yeah. Again, really.
1: Yeah. Um, it does
0: have to start again. Whatever happens, we've got to eat. <laughs> well, it's got yeah. some some form of normality has to return, really. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose what, what we're be encouraged to do is think for ourselves and think what is sensible. But it's odd that, for instance... <laughs> We're allowed to, let me see, we're allowed to visit a parent, for instance, or go to visit the parent in, in public in an open space, but only one of them. Yeah. So a couple can visit their father, one of the partner's fathers, but not their father and mother. But they can go out and sunbathe uh, six feet, this is all six feet away from each other, six feet away from two total strangers. Right. So there's an inconsistency to it, which is rather frustrating.
1: Yes, that's similar here. I suppose it's difficult to draw up a whole yeah list of criteria and say well if you're with these people and perhaps if you're
0: well they could do i mean i think to be honest that might be easier to say well you can meet your parents as long as you're all six feet away from each other well, and you're outside that seems quite reasonable to me but <laughs>
1: <laughs> whatever
0: yeah yeah <laughs> OK, um,
1: anyway. Right. well, I thought that I would, having said what I said at the beginning of the programme, I would come clean as to why I suggested this film. Because I said it was sort of vaguely autobiographical ah. for me, <laughs> in the sense that... You're um, covered
0: in tattoos, Julian, I didn't know that. <laughs> that's exactly, that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I first saw this back in the mid-1980s as a teenager... And I think maybe you did too, Mark. I don't know. Mm. And I found it intriguing and it hooked me. And I think partly because I was trying to understand what was going on in the film and I couldn't. And I kept wanting to answer that question. It's kind of hooked me into it. Um, but what really pressed this into my memory ever since was the fact that uh, I never actually got to see the end of the film. Because my uh. dad had recorded it by accident onto a wonderful Betamax videotape, the wonderful Betamax. Yeah. And uh, the video just ran out, I think, probably about three-quarters of the way through. And ever since, you know, I've wanted to see that last quarter of the film desperately. And <laughs> you would think that I'd go out and buy a DVD to, just to find out, but I am a stubborn sort of character, and I set myself the task of keeping an eye on the TV schedules to see it for free, you know. So, but it uh, <laughs> never, ever worked, so uh, I eventually gave up and bought it <laughs> for this day's conversations, So my secret is out. Um, so... <laughs> Let's let's just start with kind of brief impressions of this uh, film. I think you saw it before, Mark. What's your overall view of it now? You've
0: seen it again? I must have seen the same showing that you did on television, Yes, I think. Well, it would have been early 80s that I saw it on telly. So it was a long time ago, and I remember at the time being rather disappointed in it hmm. because I'm a massive Ray Bradbury fan and I love the images that it conjures up and the imagination and I found the film really rather dull. So it was interesting to come back to it again and re-watch it a couple of days ago and find that my opinion hasn't really changed, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, sorry, I mean, it's, <laughs> no, got some, okay. it's got some good bits in it but I think it's rather makes some rather bizarre choices about where it could have gone and it could have been so much better, so much more easily, in my opinion.
1: Sure, that's fine. I agree with you to some extent, but you're fundamentally wrong. Never mind. Um, so, <laughs> <word>. <laughs> Frank, you hadn't seen it before. You have now. What's your overall general impression of it?
2: Yeah, this is my first time seeing it. I think overall, I liked it. I will agree with Mark that I think it could have been more, but I think for what it was at the time, I think it was good. There's definitely some thought-provoking stuff in there. I'd probably come back and watch the movie a couple more times just to see what I get out of it. Um, I do love the 1960s aesthetic of what they thought the future would look like. You know, you got all these like white and smooth <laughs> yes. surfaces, you know. Yeah. One of the stories, the second story, I really uh, liked the rain sequence. I thought that was, you, you can tell it looks a little fake, but like um, visually it's still pretty interesting. So a lot of interesting visuals in this movie, but I feel like they could have gone a little further with them. But overall, I, I really did enjoy it. I don't know what I saw or what I'm supposed to get out of it, but I did enjoy it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, I think uh, the director, Jack Smite, is that his name? Mm. I can't remember who said it, but somebody said he's too conventional. Was it Ray Bradbury himself? I may even have said that he was too conventional to capture the fantastical quality mm. of the book and the stories. Um, anyway, basically, Frank, you're on side with me. So it's two against one. That's fantastic. Um, okay, I'll leave now. <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, so I thought that this film does actually dovetail with a few themes generally been looking at with TMR over the years. I mean, we find that sort of technocratic vision of the future comes up in this and uh, perhaps the question of possession in some way also links to all this. We'll see how that all pans out as we have our conversation. Now... Um, mm. I thought I would give a bit of a plot summary, because there might be some people who have not seen it since 1969. So here we go. Now, the film opens in silence, and we get a view of a a green valley and a river, and we hear a woman's voice, presumably. I think it is the the voice of Claire Bloom, Mm -hmm. who uh, plays this mysterious woman called Felicia later in the movie. And she says, anyway, over the silence, each person who tries to see beyond his own time must face questions to which there cannot yet be proven answers. And that quote comes back at the end, slightly changed. However, we then see uh, Willie, played by Robert Dribus, who's a young traveller. He's having a hitchhike lift on the back of a milk truck, and he's dropped off near a beauty spot next to this river, and he goes for a nude swim. (laughs) We next see Carl, who is this ex-circus freak show performer, this illustrated man chap, played by Rod Steiger. He's walking down the dirt track. And he's carrying a bag that we later find, has a, find out has a dog in, has a dog in it. Uh, just rather amusing. Um, he stops at the same beauty spot and independently goes for a nude swim. Uh, the uh, two men then meet back at this green clearing.
0: Not nude.
1: They're not nude by that time. No, that's right. No, no, no.
0: Fine, <laughs> Just to clear this up period. <laughs> yes,
1: yes but some people are switching <laughs> off already, wondering where this is going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um Anyway, they have a conversation, and this Carl chap, this illustrated man guy, is excessively unfriendly. He's over-inquisitive all the time. He's aggressive in tone towards the young, younger man, Willie. No apparent reason, it seems, at the time. Um, and in the course of their conversations, Carl reveals, and I mean, when I say reveals, I mean literally, he actually shows his body. He reveals that his body is tattooed nearly all over, but for one patch of bare skin on his back by a lady skin illustrator. He objects to any of these being called tattoos. No, 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 skin illustrations. He's adamant about that. And he describes this lady, this strange lady, as from the future. And Carl says that these illustrations, which cover his body, uh, when people look at them intently, well, these illustrations come alive and have a power to make people see the future, he says. Although, um, we'll talk about this later, but it's not clear to me that it, that it is the future. It seems more um, like the, the person who looks at these images gets weirdly possessed in some ways and sees an alternative reality that's future-like. It's all very strange. Um, anyway, uh, Carl feels uh, generally kind of oppressed by these illustrations. Everybody hates him for having these illustrations on his body, so he wants to find the woman and her house and kill her. And he asks, Willie, have you seen the house? And Willie says, no, I haven't seen the house. Um, but Willie, of course, as you can imagine, he's intrigued by these illustrations. And he begins to look at them more and more. And we get these flashbacks in the course of all this, where we see how Carl came to have these skin illustrations We just wandered one day from the circus and he he, uh, finds this woman with a sign saying skin illustrations outside the house. And he's tempted to go into the house because she invites him in for a lemonade and he's hoping to get laid, as he says. But uh, that doesn't happen. Well, I'm not sure whether that happens or not, actually. Um, But she's only interested, weirdly, in tattooing him. She seems to be sort of in love with the idea of tattooing this chap. And he goes back day after day to have this. And um, also, Along with these flashbacks, we also get some stories, independent stories from Ray Bradbury's collection, that appear in this film because the character Willie gives in and looks intently at these illustrations, and he finds himself then bound up in these stories from Ray Bradbury's collection. So we have three stories in here, uh, one called The Velt, another one called The Long Rain, and the third one called The Last Night of the World. Now I won't go into the detail of any of those stories, we'll get into that a bit later but you know suffice to say these stories all deal with in inverted commas the future in some sense but um, it's not quite clear to me anyway in what sense and the film ends in which willie looks into the bare patch on carl's back while he's asleep and he sees the future or is it the future he sees flames and an image of himself being strangled to death by carl so now he's so affected by all these weird experiences, he believes this is really the future for him. And so he, he tries to change that future by killing Carl. He picks up this rock and crashes it onto Carl's head and runs off down the, the dirt track. And uh, unfortunately for Willie, Carl rather implausibly comes to after having a huge rock chucked <laughs> juxt- on his head, <laughs> um, almost like the Terminator rises yes. uh, with a bloody face. And um, mm. thanks to the nasty little dog that was in the bag, mm. he's able to... Follow Willie down the road and presumably strangle him or well, we don't know. We don't actually know know. what happens, whether it's future or not. Um, Anyway, that's my attempt there at reminding people of the film they saw 50 years ago. So we will uh, get on to talking about all that in more detail in a bit. I just thought perhaps we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the production um what did we think chaps of the acting i know that roger ebert who wrote a review around the time was not over enamored by the acting. he said it wasn't so bad but uh not perhaps the strongest point of the film what do you think
0: it's okay i struggled a bit and it's something you haven't mentioned yet and i'm sure we'll talk about it more that rod steiger and claire bloom appear in well rod steiger appears as the illustrated man mm. and also as the various male characters in the the individual stories within the film. Yes, and Claire Bloom again appears as this witch sort of character, and again she appears when the stories allow her to as the female character. Yeah, which I find a bit cheap, really, to be honest. Hmm. You know, and I imagine them sort of <laughs> saying to Rod Steiger, who was a I mean, massive, massive actor at the time, and saying, "Well, look, here's the script." And I can imagine him saying, well, it's okay, but I need to be in much more of the film. And they go, okay, okay, we'll have you in all the stories. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, I'm being cynical, yes. but, you know. And then, of course, Claire Bloom and I think Rod Steiger were married at the mm. time. So you can imagine him saying, oh, well, how about having a part for my wife in the film as well? It seems... Yes. A li- they did <sighs> shortly divorce afterwards, so I don't know if it was anything to do with the film. <laughs> right. <laughs> it seems to be the sort of film where I can imagine them having good fun making it, but for the audience, I need a little bit more variety. If the film seems to be fundamentally about variety yep. tattoos he's covered in tattoos and that's the other thing He's not because you can clearly see there are bits of his body that haven't got tattoos other than the, the main bit on his back which is an, <laughs> annoying i find irritating um, <laughs> yeah. but for a film that's supposed to be all about imagination and taking him to all these wonderful worlds to have the same faces if you like in the same stories um, i find rather off-putting hmm. i want there to be more differences <laughs> and more variety I've got, um,
1: got to jump in there because I, I take what you say, yeah. and I think you're probably right about the cheapness aspect of it, because there was a lot about this film that smacked of cheapness, mm. and, and settings mm. particularly. But then that is actually one of the aspects that really intrigues me. Right. Because I, I try to, I'm struggling to find what the coherence is. What's the logical connection between mm-hmm. the characters as they appear in the main story, the sort of framing story, mm-hmm. and those same characters, and yet they're not the same characters. They've got the same names, for heaven's sake, in these little stories. They're actually called Carl. They're actually called Felicia. They're actually called mm-hmm. uh, Will or Willie or variations on that. And I think, okay, so is it the same characters in the future? Because he says or this is the future you know you can see the future so Willie looks into these illustrations and sees in inverted commas the future Mm -hmm. and yet we see what Carl's future, Felicia's future, no, it doesn't make any sense because they're living, mm. what, in 4,100 and whatever it is in one of the stories, uh, but they're the same mm. age as they are or even younger than they are in the framing narrative. Mm. So that all really intrigues me, but you couldn't achieve that unless you did have the same actors, you see what I mean? So yeah, uh, <laughs> different angle on the same thing.
0: Yeah, I suppose I come to it from the, which, again, I think we're going to talk about the literary side of it, that having grown up with the book, and I know the book very well, yeah. the book is essentially... It's just a collection of disparate stories, stories that were published in magazines, etc., which is put together. And then the framing device of The Illustrated Man is, is literally just sort of five or six pages at the beginning and then a page at the end, mm. just to sort of make them feel like there's something cohesive about the stories. But actually the stories are not written specifically for this narrative and they are just pulled from different sources. Mm. So it's almost like a way... Of, yes, of trying to make the film in some way make sense of having these different stories, which in the book doesn't matter so much because it's an anthology and you just go from one to another.
1: Can I jump in there again? Frank, you will get a chance to speak in a minute. We're just pursuing a particular line. I (laughs) worry. But there is uh, one of these small stories in the book. is called The Illustrated Man. And so we do have a weird connection. I think that sort of corresponds to the flashbacks
0: in the film to some extent. It's um, that's it's, Can I just jump into your jump again? Yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> this is where it gets complicated mm. because in the book that I read and the book that anyone in the UK read, there are 16 stories. In the American version, there are 18 stories. Huh. And four of those stories in the American version don't yeah. appear in the English version. And the English version has two extra stories replacing two of those stories. <laughs> right. Now, this might be to do with rights issues. I imagine I can't, uh, I don't know what it would be. But The Illustrated Man, the actual short story, The Illustrated Man, as opposed to the name of the anthology, <laughs> only appeared in America. And only very recently, I think about the year 1997, it was put into the edition. Ray Bradby wrote it for Esquire magazine back in 1951. So, about the time these stories were put together but it didn't appear until much, much later on in the process. So he wrote, he wrote oh, it before the film, but it actually didn't appear as part of the anthology until much later. Mm. So he's like working on the same theme of this guy called the Illustrated Man, and he's got the same backstory of working in a carnival, but he actually has a story all to himself as opposed to being a framing device. And that didn't, It's quite
1: complicated. Yes, and that didn't originally appear yeah. in the anthology. No. So there's no way in which the film is actually trying to reproduce some of the incoherence of the anthology itself by having a story called The Illustrated Man and a framing story called The Illustrating Man and all the all the problems that that creates in the in anthology that I, I've seen. It's not trying to do that at all because that didn't exist at the
0: time. No. Okay. Well, it existed. It was published in 1951, the short story. Mm. So it was accessible to whoever wanted to use it, mm. but it wasn't in the yeah. published book if you see what i mean that that was very popular so the guy who bought the screenplay bought it but without that short story in um but elements of it sort of come up don't they in the film
1: they do yeah oh wow this is extremely convoluted to talk about isn't it sorry it is a little (laughs)
0: little bit complicated and i think that's part of the problem with the film is sort of making sense of this instead of just being a clean screenplay if you like a fresh screenplay it's trying to bring in this stuff that pre-existed and try to make sense of it mm.
1: Which it doesn't achieve, it certainly doesn't make sense of it But I, I love the experience of Even though you never get there, of trying to make sense Because mm-hmm. the film is constantly appealing To you to somehow make sense of this By having these same yeah. characters in different places and different times um, yeah. I thought Rod Steiger was Characteristically really good um, Just really morose and intense And I think he kind of Outperforms everybody else, so I feel a bit Sorry for everybody else in the film, but I thought the acting Was, was okay actually What about the script? I mean, I think the script was actually quite poor. Mm. Ray Bradbury apparently said that the script was terrible. There were times when I thought it reminded me of, you know, some of the worst instances of Columbo, you know, where you have a character actually explaining the story because you've got so little time to get the story across to the audience. They explain the story in dialogue with one another, which I always think, oh, no, not again. You know, you can't speak to each other like that. But
2: some of that was actually
1: going on, I thought, in this film, Mm. which was really poor writing.
2: Any thoughts? i haven't seen it enough to um comment really on the script but i do kind of agree with you on the acting like i feel like the acting in this in the framing device wasn't so good and like the weaker of the characters was like willie you know the younger man and when he popped up in the stories too like i felt that he was kind of out of place it made more sense to have all the stories feature rod steiger and claire bloom you know to me Mm -hmm. but when willie popped up i was like why is he there and i I don't know if that's a problem with the script or the acting, but... um, I think he kind of had
1: to be there, didn't he, in order to fulfill this idea that all the characters were (laughs) taken up into this alternative reality. Mm. But I I thought that the small stories are so short, I can imagine it's very difficult for actors to really get any depth of character going in any of those stories, really.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess my problem with the script and the acting would be, like, on one level, I took the stories to be... Him retelling his accounts of what happened with this witch lady and uh, she put these illustrations on him and she either took him to the future or made him think she took him to the future. And they lived out a series of years together in these stories or something like that. And then he ended up telling these stories to the boy he meets in the field. And then when the young boy pops up in those stories, I just felt that was really confusing and jarring. Because mm. like, so is this uh, him remembering the story? Is he insane or is... Mm young man putting himself into the stories so i guess to me that was sort of like the confusing part of the stories was like (laughs) why is a young guy in there and i think if they would have substituted some other actor in each of those stories for willie i think it would have worked better
0: Hmm.
2: i don't know what kind of decision that was in the filmmaking process but um it didn't make sense to me that he was there
0: yeah Mm In what sense, Julian, do you think the script is poor? I'd be interested to sort of know. Well, I've already expressed
1: one, which as far as I'm concerned is yeah. a fatal flaw. So
0: it's, I can't remember. But it's like, so it's like, oh, Jerry, you remember that time when we went to the bloke and they explained it, something it, they both know? Exactly, that they yeah. already
1: know, but the yes. audience doesn't know. Yeah, it's terribly yeah. artificial, but it was done several times right. in the Veldt, inside their white room, okay. discussing the culture they lived in. I thought, yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah. know all this. You wouldn't speak to each other like that.
2: Um, That's weird because at my first viewing, I didn't
1: I didn't pick up on that. Oh, well, it wasn't as bad. But I, I must admit, I'm tuned to that, having watched Columbo a lot, you see. So <laughs> yeah, there are some really good, well-written ones, but some of the scriptwriters in that are so poor. You know, I got used to, okay. uh, I spot that one a mile off. And it was echoed by a Wikipedia article somebody called John Stanley wrote saying that producer howard b kreutzik's script fails to capture the poetry or imagination of ray bradbury's famous collection Now, because i haven't read the whole collection but the bits that i have read yeah there is a tremendous imagination gift with language that just doesn't get um presented in the script mm. and i think that all the, the sort of exotic element the power of language to conjure up images in your mind you know i think that a lot of that's actually carried by the music mm. which i do think is brilliant apart from the veldt which I think <laughs> at that point it's all synthesized trying to be modern sounding and i think jerry goldsmith okay, yeah. just you know slapped that together one <laughs> afternoon sort of thing but the rest of it he, he, he yeah. created i think a really excellent score which you know mm. was um mm. quite exotic and involving you know lots of different styles there mm. capturing the weirdness of it all brilliantly
0: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, technically, I think it's a bit of a shame because I, okay, it's a cheap film. You can see it's a cheap film. I mean, the last mm. story is just a tent in a field. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> really bad, isn't yes, it? Yes. Um, it's really cheap, but but doesn't mean to say you you could still do a lot with your imagination in in terms of filmmaking. And I think it's a shame. Mm. You know, the whole thing is here is this guy. He's covered in tattoos, and the tattoos move. Ooh. He can feel them. Moving on his back at night, which is a fantastic image. Uh, he talks about that in the film, doesn't he? Yes. And it's not beyond the wit of the filmmakers to have actually just done that, yes. just to have them an animated section, just a little bit, or just a suggestion of an animation. You never get that. No, good point in right? the whole film, but that disappoints me um, because they could have turned it over to Walt Disney, for instance, some his animators, just to have a, just a little bit going on in the corner, even if it's very subliminal in the dark nothing, mm. nothing and I think yeah, that's that would, a shame no. I can imagine them remaking that film today and it being, if they yes. were clever, really good because they could really absolutely utilise the power yeah. of CGI in a very positive way and make these tattoos moving around and swirling around his body it would be stunning. It would. So I think that's a shame they didn't make an effort to do that
1: If they yeah. made it today they'd probably be better just to make the short story The Illustrated Man because there's enough in there I think yeah. to, for it to hold yeah. its own In fact the, the only bit that does move on his body is this rather poor projection that we see at the end, where <laughs> yeah. Willie looks at this this this, yeah, this patch yeah. of skin and says, "Oh, I'm being strangled to death in there." But that was just like a, an overlaying of one film over another, isn't it? Superimposition,
0: and a film made in 1969. Um- with all the psychedelia going on at the time for goodness sake
1: 2001 was the year before well i know i know <laughs> all the technicality there um,
0: yeah. you know i mean that's you can't really compare with that i mean, it's, you know took three years to make it etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah. the idea of just colored filters and lights and stuff you know nothing nothing at all mm-hmm. it was very mm-hmm. flat the direction i mean and that business with them just talking the, the framing device for me just felt so flat mm. you know i got so bored every time they went back to it um, I loved it, you see. That's where yeah, we differ. Okay, the interesting.
1: atmosphere was so tense all the time. Oh, I, did, I didn't find that. The only bit yeah. And the music is—he was carrying it as well. As far as okay. I'm mm. concerned, his hand reappeared, and you saw the first tattoos, and the the music became really ominous just before he saw it. And I was just, oh, it's just brilliantly done. And I was picking up on you know, sort of Schoenberg okay. and Stravinsky and Varese, and all these composers in you know, Boulez that I don't, you know know quite well. Okay. So yeah, it was that mm. okay. all entertained me in its own way. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, Frank, you were trying to you were trying to uh, come in there.
2: Yeah, no, I, I had a question because you you both have brought up this other story, the Illustrated Man, and. I've I mentioned in chats uh, the the story something wicked this way comes, and in that story, the guy who runs the carnival—I think his name is Mister Dark. He's mm. an illustrated man mm. too, and I, I believe mm. his tattoo is also move, and that seems right. to be a theme. Bradbury has yeah. done a couple of times. Is, is that supposed to be the same character or a different character? And yeah. why is he like using this illustrated man as like a common theme in some of his works? Do you think?
0: I don't know. I know that Ray Bradby was always, whenever he's interviewed, he's always, whenever he wrote stuff, he was always, he always talked about visiting these carnivals as a young child. They would come mm-hmm. along by train, set themselves up in the in the field, and there would be, you know, there would be a tattooed man and a bearded lady and a an Ele- Mr. Electrico, I think, who could sort of take electricity into him and sort of hair would go up. And so all this <laughs> stuff st- st- stayed with him as a child and that's influenced all his writing. So he does use the same themes time and again in his books. So. They're
2: not the same character because no, I don't know. I mean, pff, who's the then Mr. Duck, he does some different, he does a lot of different things. He, yeah. He's like running the carnival and like he yeah. can like age and de-age people. And that's totally a different thing. Yeah, I what think so. I mean, Ray Barry, he
0: only he only wrote mm, two novels. Uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes and Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. Which the, f- the film is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And the other novel he wrote, he he writes fix-up novels, which are basically short stories but woven into a narrative mm-hmm. uh, much more sort of coherently than The Illustrated Man. So it'll feel like a novel, but it'll segue into these short stories. And then he writes anthologies like The Illustrated Man. So he's only written two long-form books, and I think he's much better suited as a short story writer, to be honest. Yeah. I think that's what he would say that himself because he'd only written and he had a go at writing novels twice.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but I don't think it's the same character. I think it's just yeah. thematically similar.
2: Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. He he mm. seems to revisit this theme of tattooed mm. men with skin illustrations that move, and I just thought mm. that's an interesting uh, mm. common theme to have in your work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's very bizarre. Yeah. 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 Mind you,
0: I have
1: thought that perhaps Fahrenheit 451 is one that we should cover at some point. So. Yeah, yeah. It's a
0: very, it's a, I'd love to reread the book again, and the film is excellent. Yeah.
1: And one thing that disappointed me, I suppose, going back to the short story called The Illustrated Man, and I said there was a lot in there that could have been made into a film in its own right, something I really missed was this witch character... In the story mm-hmm. with these sort of sewn up eyes and sewn up mm. ears. He's been sitting there for a 100 years. And
0: now she is in the Something Wicked This Way Comes, that character. Oh, right. Gosh, how strange. Isn't That's she? Right. I think yeah. is, she's the witch and she's got sewn up eyes, but she can predict, she can see, like, you know, with this extra sensory perception thing. There's a common theme there, isn't there? Yes, but that would have been a stunning. Wow, yeah. Imagine that. That would have been. Oh, a, wouldn't Yeah, you know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Real Stephen King sort of territory there.
0: Isn't yeah, it? I mean, mm. I'm not going overboard by saying that there are sexual themes in this, in the sense that he's going to this house, mm. she's this attractive woman, he lies on the bed, but she tattoos, and there is a sexual element to it, surely.
1: Oh, absolutely. He says that he was, yeah, he yeah. wanted to get laid, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. And she seduces him. Yeah, it's very clear she's not interested in him. Yeah, she, yeah. she's sexually aroused by these illustrations. Mm. weirdly.
0: Mm.
2: he did also make a point that uh, he was covered all over with the skin. Yeah, yeah. So He did make a clear point of that. Yeah, yes, That's right. yes.
1: It's not quite clear though whether they do actually ultimately make love or not. He says that. She treated him almost as a husband. Oh, right. it's left at that, isn't it?
2: I think it's heavily implied that they did have um, a relation. Right. You know, I think they were intimate. Perhaps she was giving him like sexual favors. Mm. That's what he wanted, and she wanted to do the illustration, so mm. he mm-hmm. got what he wanted, and she gave him that, so she could do what she wanted. You know, and that's interesting
1: um, that she appears as a prostitute, doesn't she, in one of the short stories mm-hmm. in yes. the in the long range. So that ties up with that mm. there are lots of interesting tyings up which get you thinking mm. you know, however we 're dissing the film in various ways mm. it 's well worth watching which is why we 're actually talking about it mm-hmm. but yes I was disappointed that perhaps some of those really descriptive and chilling elements in that mm. short story called The Illustrated man didn 't appear in the film it had been tweaked so much in a different direction um, mm-hmm. and certainly the descriptions about you know he's described as a fat man working at the circus isn 't he and uh, mm-hmm. sort of living on sugar and donuts and the like and it's sort of coursing mm. through his veins all that sort of fantastic writing and imagery just yeah. doesn't
0: appear shame mm. it's very hard to get that across actually it the more flowery you are in the writing it's really hard to create that visually without appearing yeah. pretentious or rather over the top and laughable mm. i know what you mean i think this film goes the opposite direction it's too bland but yeah. i've seen some ray Bradbury adaptations that actually come over as rather risible. But on the page, I think they're really good. There is a different sort of discipline. But I know what you mean. Visually, he provides so many fantastic images that, yeah, they should have used some of these in the film. Yeah. So it needed a different director. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, I've seen a couple of other of his films. The guy directed this, whose name was... Jack Smite, Smite. he hasn't done very many films. And I've seen Damnation Alley, which came out in 77, It's a science fiction film that at the time was going to be bigger than Star Wars. Star Wars was this film that was going to bomb, and they put their money into Damnation Alley, and that bombed. And then (laughs) Airport 75, one of the airport disaster films he directed. But looking at the list, he hasn't done any really that have stood the test. This is probably his most famous film. Hmm. he's directed. Perhaps somebody like Terry
1: Gilliam would have been right yes. for this sort of oh. thing. Yes,
0: or David Lynch mm. or something, yeah. It's
1: not too late, it's not too
0: late. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Well, we ought to look at these three short stories then, because we've already mentioned them quite a bit. Um, so the first one, mm-hmm. Willie's looking at the illustrated man's tattoos, and he fixes on a particular symbol, and he sees in inverted commas the future. He, he seems to get possessed by this image. It comes alive for him. And the first one is... The Velt. Um, So this is a futuristic tale of a family in a kind of plastic world. They live in a white house. It's got Mm -hmm. a few interconnected rooms. No outdoors light coming in at all. It's all artificial. And there's a mum and dad who correspond to the characters Carl and Felicia, you know, the tattooed man and the, the the lady illustrator, and a couple of children called Johnny, little Johnny, and <laughs> Anna, and they, they have a playroom that's a sort of virtual reality playroom, but it's more than that, because it, mm. by the power of the mind, the electronics sort of capture the thought of the mind and create this virtual reality that has... Well, I suppose perhaps one could see it as being some sort of nano-fabrication where these Mm. things are actually able to interact physically with the person in the playroom. Um, It's it's weird. Anyway, um, super technology. It's a sort of mind-operated chamber. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these children are playing in there and they play in the African veld, some grassland in sort of South Africa, near to some lions. Mm -hmm. Because The the parents find out about this. They're not happy with this because it's sort of concrete in some way the lions could eat the kids. So um, this device was recommended by will so there's the same name again this young man who turns out to be their mental health counselor as part of that civilization's free involvement program because the children mostly johnny need to vent their feelings in this rather sanitized world you see they're all bored it's all plastic you know there's only work half the year and they ask each other you know things like uh, well you know we sleep we have sex what's left you know it's very boring um Anyway, the uh, the parents suggest that the playroom needs to go. And Will, this counsellor, agrees. And the father is very overbearing about this decision and uh, lays the law down to the kids who resent this because they don't respect his authority in this world. They end up hating their parents. Um, so the kids create a plan. They will seem to go into the playroom and they cry out in fear and their parents then rush from their bedroom To the playroom to go and see what the problem is and of course what happens is they enter into the veld where the lions are and they're eaten by the lions Um, so the kids killed their parents and it ends with will dropping in for a meal to which he was invited the next day and he finds nobody home and he walks around the apartment there's nobody there and then he goes tentatively into the playroom and finds the kids there in the veldt having a nice drink of coffee and the girl looks up at him and says would you like a cup of coffee (laughs) and and that's 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 it and he says oh my whatever he's I don't know what he says oh heavens um anyway what do you think Um, what's your interpretation either of you what's going on in that
2: I thought this was the weakest story in the movie um There's a few things. I mean, this room is basically like the holodeck from Star Trek, except we don't get any of the interesting transitions, you know, because they cheaped out on the special effect. You just walk in and it's already whatever scene they're at, you know, whereas in like Star Trek, they would show you the holodeck and then, oh, we pull up the program and everything appears. Mm. Even right from the beginning when the parents were kind of curious what the lions were eating, I thought it was pretty obvious where the story was going to go like the kids had set up the program to have it, they were imagining or like they were eating like holographic versions of their parents. Probably. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. given yeah. what happens to them at the end, I think they, they were fantasizing about it. And then finally they, <laughs> yes. they, they acted on their, you know, because they were, they were like probably chafing under the rules of the parents, you know, mm. and that's why they were always in the African belt is they were enacting that fantasy. And then finally they did it for real mm. when, you know, the parents said, OK, no more holodeck, you know. <laughs> so then they just said, well, let's <laughs> yes. do it for real. Do you, you agree know?
1: that part of the point of the story is that these kids are, you know, a product of that sort of super technocratic civilization that they're so estranged from their own humanity yeah. so bored that that's that's how they end up being they, yeah. they're murderous for just sensation <laughs>
2: Yeah I think that's definitely right on I think um as cheesy as this part of the movie was I think there is some interesting things to take away from it one is like yeah that they will do that to stave off their boredom and like they're going to fantasize about their parents dying because they're just bored of everything and maybe they blame their parents also Mm. this is sort of like a looking forward to you know parents who just sit their kids down and let the xbox and video games Mm. baby Mm. fit their kids you know like uh, not every kid is like this but you do see like extreme examples where like the kids will be on the video games all the time because the parents that's all they let their kids do and then Come teenagers, you know the parent finally wants to start interacting with their kid, yeah. and they find that their child is detached to them because they've just neglected their kid to the video games for the last ten years. So I thought that was very interesting that that was kind of looking forward to that even back then. Not saying yeah. that video games cause violence, but just that you have this detached relationship from the parents and the kids because of the technology. Yeah. So I mean that's kind of my thoughts on the whole mm. the whole thing. Um I think it is a warning about that technocratic
1: utopia vision mm. which you know we don't have a word mm. good word to say about on the podcast anyway. Um <laughs> but um you know with the third of these little stories, which we'll come to in a minute, it's a kind of alternative view. <laughs> of the future in inverted commas that also is another sort of utopian Mm. view that has its own dark Mm. side but we'll come to that in a minute do you want to say anything else about the veld or should we move on to the long reign
0: well i mean i'd like to have a word about the veld um Mm. i really like the story i mean on the page i think it's wonderfully creepy and I kind of like it in the film, actually. It's, it does stick to the story in the book pretty thoroughly. They make an odd change. When I reread the book a couple of days ago, the children's names are Peter and Wendy. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, what does that make you think of? Peter Pan. No, Peter Pan. Peter, yeah. Peter Pan, mm-hmm. which is adds a nice yeah. little touch to this sort of nursery. And they, they change it for some reason for the film, which is a shame, because that seems to take away a, a certain level of interest to the, yes. for the narrative in the film there is a they go to a, there's a medieval castle they sort of they go in and it's it's not the Velt. it's a medieval castle at one point but lots of extras in the background you yeah. remember that I do that's not in the story either and I think that's that's odd I suppose it's fine it just at least it shows that they can program other backgrounds if you like I mean, I think a lot of Bradbury's stories are to do with the evil of children, if you like, in the sense of not romanticising them. He sort of believes, I think, that children, quite young children can have a sense of good and evil and can do bad things. And there's a story called The Small Assassin, which is literally about a baby who wants to murder uh, his mother. Um, It's a very creepy story. This, I think, is basically the, the children, although you're right, there's an element where they're bored. But surely, you know, children who are bored don't necessarily think destructive thoughts they could think daddy why can't you write a book or something you know they don't have to murder their parents so there is this common theme in his writing where children are do have bad thoughts Um, there's a story in in the illustrated man in the book called the playground which is a brilliant story of this mother and father want to introduce their child to this urban playground, and the father is very anti because of, of, of the violence of the children pushing and shoving and kicking and, and etc. And the mother's saying, oh, no, the, the son's got to learn that's part of life. And they do a kind of weird body swap, if you like, and the father becomes the son and the son becomes the father. And it ends with the father on top of the slide thinking, oh, I've got another 10 years of this of being shoved and bullied and kicked. And it's oh. it's, a, it's a really oh, yeah. disturbing story. This is one of his themes, is children having a, a dark side, if you like. The Lord of the Flies kind of thing. Well, exactly. Mm. And it's a certain element, I think, it's true. Children, I think, do like, faced with all sorts of things. They probably prefer, mm. you know, westerns and shooting and stuff than, than not. But I think, unlike Frank, I think this is one of the more, more successful of the three. I think it's probably the one at my favourite, actually. It There's also a play version of it, which I was wanted to direct at some point. Bradbury wrote this for the theatre, and it's, he uses... All sorts of things, lighting effects and projection effects, etc., to recreate it, which I think will be quite interesting to do. Mm.
1: I guess it's true of the film, anyway, having not read very much of the book and the stories, that all the characters have a dark side, don't they? Every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the illustrated man, mm-hmm. the female character, the witch sort of character, obviously, even Will. In the end, kills, tries to kill the illustrated man. Mm-hmm. Um, they all have that ability to turn to the dark side, as it were, mm-hmm. according to mm-hmm. the circumstances. So, yeah, it's um, there's no romanticization of human nature in general, is there?
0: No, no. Mm-hmm.
1: No, definitely not. Um, okay, The Long rain. Mm. As I said, I love this because it's just so odd. Um, <laughs> I didn't pick up, funnily enough, from watching it that it was Venus. I only got that from the book. Was it mentioned mm. in the film that it was Venus?
2: No. Mm. I don't think it is, no. no. I only got that from reading the Wikipedia that it's set on Venus. Yeah. Otherwise, you would never know where it's set. No, no, no.
1: no, So what we see is this super watery planet, which has a single sea and therefore a single continent. Mm. It has all these weird algae-like plants growing in this foamy mud. And mm. that's pretty much it. Uh, yes, and these, yes. <laughs> well, yes. That, that just captured me as, as a teenager looking at that. Oh wow, that's a world, you know. Mm-hmm. And these four men have crashed on the surface of this planet. Um, it just rains all the time, mm-hmm. torrentially, loudly. They cannot return to their ship to find maps because of contamination. So we're told. We're not told what that contamination is. We presume it's some sort of nuclear contamination. Anyway, they have um, to walk around with no navigation to find a sun dome, mm. and one of these is placed every twenty miles. We join them when they've travelled for six or seven days, and they just end up where they started. <laughs> they see the ship, and, and you know they're absolutely exhausted. They're demoralised. And obviously they fall out and argue. And one of them zapped by the Colonel character who corresponds to the character, Carl, the illustrated man, and this chap who's zapped dies oozing in the mud. Great scene. I
0: love that scene. Mm, and yeah. as,
1: if, as if the earth comes and sort of eats him up. It's now, weird.
0: that's a lovely visual um, bit in the film. I agree. That's excellent. It is, actually. That's right on, isn't it? That's my yeah. favorite part,
2: actually. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, another one of these characters drowns himself vertically in a stream that's coming down a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, William... Of course, who corresponds to Will, loses his hearing because of this incessant rain. Mm. He can't hear the colonel's instructions anymore. Um, and he accuses the colonel of wanting to kill everything that he touches, everything gets in his way. And, um, you know, the colonel is constantly trying to say, come on, you know, we might find another one of these sun domes. And then he says, you know, you might find a lady there waiting for you. And the other guy who can't hear, but he can sort of lip read. He says, oh, you know, that's you're trying to persuade me to carry on because of a prostitute. He said, I'm not like that. He says
0: space horse that 's right space horse yes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, anyway, this young guy 's not interested in that, you know, so he gives up all hope and he commits suicide by zapping himself, so it's just the colonel who carries on, and the utter bitter irony is that within a few minutes of turning the corner, he finds an active sun dome. They found one previously that was all wrecked, you know, but this one is actually active, and so, ah, he's, he's delighted. And he goes up through this tube, and the rain last stops, and there's silence, and there's sunshine, artificial sunshine, and warmth. and And inside the dome is a woman corresponding to Felicia. And what I love about this scene is that as he enters this, she looks at him. The music suddenly comes back again, a very goldsmithy kind of music. And he reaches out to take the towel from her to dry himself. He doesn't seem to recognize her, but she recognizes him Mm. so knowingly. She is Felicia. You know, she is this sort of time alternative reality traveling which character it's uh, really i found that moment quite spine chilling because mm. it doesn't make any sense you know <laughs> it really doesn't make any sense but i, I love that about it that it, you just have to keep on asking how does it how does it you know you're never going to get the answer but how does it makes it's a real sort of magical fantastical world going on there i love this particular one i think this might be close to the point where you know the video cut off when i saw it as a teenager and uh, so this is the abiding image i have of this rainy planet so i l- love this and frank you you liked this one too, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I did. I, I, I don't, I don't know really what subtext or subliminal thing we're supposed <laughs> to take away from it. No, I just actually it was interesting. Um, the rain was interesting for a, a planet. I had it hadn't really been done before in science fiction at, at that point, you know. Hmm. And then the, the end uh, when he gets into the pleasure dome and everything's silent, you don't hear the rain anymore. I think it's quite a striking silence. So I thought the sequence was really interesting and well done, but I don't. I don't know that really there's any takeaway from it. Um, isn't that
1: interesting? Because architecturally, in terms of the structure of the movie, this is right in the center, isn't it? Yeah. And yet you're left with thinking, well, what's that about? Hmm. That's, yeah. I, mean, I quite like that. <laughs>
2: well, I, don't, I, I don't know if there's really anything to take out of it. The only thing I, I mean, as somebody who's read a lot of pulp science fiction stories, is that it's the pulp early 1900s version of venus that's kind of a tropical yeah. jungle yeah you, yeah, you yeah you don't really see anymore so i thought that was like probably the most interesting aspect
1: which makes it not science fiction at the time doesn't it it makes it fantasy really mm. yeah because it was known at the time wasn't it that venus is just not going to be like that if you go there yeah that's interesting in itself
2: yeah it was known quite early on even by a time like when edgar rice burroughs was writing like edgar rice burroughs was writing um Adventure stories set on Venus, and I think even by that point, they probably had a good idea that Venus was uninhabitable. Yeah,
1: yeah. See, so, you know, the reason why I'm, I'm highlighting that is because one of the things that Roger Ebert said, and I kind of agree with him, was that uh, this film doesn't know whether it's fantasy or science fiction. Mm-hmm. And I know what he means, but I tend to come down heavily on the idea that this is all fantasy, mm-hmm. and that it's only an in inverted comma science fiction. Because the little stories that are chosen have to be in the future, because this whole thing is about in inverticomas the future. Mm. But really, they could be any time, you know. Yeah, mm. we'll come on to discuss this one in a minute with the Last Night of the World. You know, a, a death cult r- ruling the world could be at any. Time. Mm. This planet could be, you know, like like Star Wars, a long time ago on a distant, distant galaxy, yeah. sort of thing.
2: I think you're right in assessing it as a fantasy movie. I think it's like Star Wars in that it's a fantasy that uses science fiction as scenery, as props. You know, mm. yeah, yeah. It's a good way to
0: describe it. It is actually that is a very good way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, it's very. It's pretty much the same as as written. There's a couple of bits in the story. I just wanted to a couple of sentences because I've got the book sure. with me here. There's a great bit. Okay, and it's and as they stood from a distance, they had a roar, and the monster came out of the rain. And you go, oh, no. <laughs> and then it goes on. The monster was supported upon a thousand electric blue legs. It walked swiftly and terribly. It struck down a leg with a driving blow. Everywhere a leg struck, a tree fell. And actually, it's, it's an electrical storm. Ah, yes. So that's the monster. It's a cloud with this electricity, you know, electric bolts coming down. That's the way he writes, which is fantastic. Mm. The way he describes stuff is brilliant. Yes. And um, I guess budgetary reasons. <laughs> they didn't do that in the film. I think it would have spoiled it, though, I think. The purity of it is yeah. yeah. There's a great bit in the story where it says uh, the boat was deflated and stored in a cigarette packet. Mm-hmm. Just lovely little things like that where they've gone a boat and they just pressed a button. It's, um, I like the story, but I think, like Frank says, what does it say? What, does it, yeah. what it is is good, but it's just... Of all the stories in this anthology, it's a very odd one to make centre stage in the film.
1: Mm. Maybe it just appeared to smite's imagination, oh, I've really got to do that, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. And it does, unlike the other stories, hooray, it's got variety, you know. They've concocted this whole world that's quite different to everything else around it, which is brilliant. Obviously, it must have done it in a studio, I'm assuming. But the sheer discomfort of, of that must have been horrendous because yeah. you can't fake what's going on there. It must have been cold and wet and horrible very well done it is that is yeah i'll say that you
1: can almost feel that sense of asphyxiation can't you oh yeah yeah when the guy weirdly commits suicide by drowning himself standing up you think well that's a ridiculous Mm. idea but actually once you've seen that for several minutes you think oh yeah "Yeah, that's
0: quite possible (laughs) i don't think they say it in the film but in the book uh, one of the characters says i'm sorry i came to china and they go first time i ever heard venus called china sure china chinese water kill remember the old torture you know so it's the chinese water torture Hmm. But uh, it's hard to know what to make of it, to extrapolate from it, other than the bit at the end yes. the, the witch seems to recognise him. That's about it, isn't it, I think? Yeah. And it's another chance for Rod Steiger to do some acting, you know. Yes.
1: yes. <laughs> All right, well, let's look at the third of these short stories that are included. So we have here The Last Night of the World, which I'm saying is a kind of mirror image of the Velt, although it isn't in the book, but it is in the film. So it forms a kind of arch with these three stories and the rather strange one set on venus in the middle um so here we have an apparently idyllic setting in the countryside a family a mum and dad corresponding to the two main characters of course um carl has the same name certainly Uh, they live in a big white tent and the children play freely with the animals and the year is 4187 the future very definitely Uh, now this dad carl has just returned from a meeting of the world forum all men all All men men in the world yes all men which is interesting all men in the world numbering 2193 men just so few people Mm -hmm. um so this is the opposite of this massive world of technocracy that we saw in the first one where there's so many people there's not enough work for them to do they can only work six months of the year so you know obviously this is a complete opposite there are so few people in this world um this world forum has agreed that there's a certain course of action that has to be taken because every adult in that world has had a dream saying that the world is about to end that night. So because the children didn't have that dream, it is decided by this forum that they should be spared the experience, which Carl explains uh, could be hideous, you know, like being burned to death or something. They don't know what's going to happen, but the world is going to end. So the forum unanimously agrees the children should be put to sleep that night by all their parents. And uh Felicia, the mum, is stunned by this. She cannot agree to it. Um, although I have to say she does seem not as affected by the announcement as she should be. I don't know whether that's mm-hmm. a subpar acting there by Claire Bloom or whether, in fact, that was part of this kind of weird cult that they were involved in. That mm-hmm. if the forum has said it, then that's the way it is. And she was trying to be obedient, but it was jarring at the same time. Maybe we'll discuss that in a minute. Um, anyway, they both decide against this course of action. So it seems. And I think at that moment they do. But obviously something happens in the night because in the morning she wakes up and finds that Carl is not beside her. She also finds that, of course, it didn't happen because there's a new day. So she goes out into the rest of the tent to find Carl and she doesn't find him and she goes to the children and she finds there Carl crouching between the two beds of the two children, both of whom he has poisoned to death Mm. during the night. And it's quite chilling. He looks up suddenly at her with, a mm. I think, an excellent expression. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I, uh, I'm calling a blank expression of guilt mixed with an inner deadness. Mm. I think he pulls that off brilliantly, and I do feel quite spooked out by that. Um, and she screams. That's where it ends. But that story is considerably changed, isn't it, Mark, from the book?
0: Yes. Um, the book is literally, it's just a four-page story it's probably the shortest story in it and it's not even a story it's just an incident i think set in the 50s whenever the book was written a couple have come they've just discussed oh, i had a dream last night so did i and the people at my work did oh we just dreamt that the world's going to end tonight no that's that's odd what should we do we'll go and see a film no let's just stay in it's all very very low key and they both sort of say oh i suppose it's because of the world we've mistreated the world and it's all it hasn't worked out and that's it very sort of calm and philosophical and towards the end i think the, the, they go to bed that one thing about the children is they say um i think the woman says i wonder if the children know The father says no of course not they sat and read the papers and then, that's it and then uh, and then they go to bed and the woman says um the wife says oh i left the water running in the in the sink and then they have a little laugh and they go and then they go to sleep and good night he said after a moment good night she said that's it right
1: that's right. it it's such Weird. a yeah.
0: it's such a slightly sort of touching slightly odd story and there's nothing dark about it it's just it's as if everyone in the world suddenly realizes oh oh well, that's it oh okay
1: oh yes cuz people beyond that couple also have this sense that the work, everybody, everybody so it's does it's like you okay. go to
0: work yeah. and you realize people are staring into space thoughtfully and you go well why Why?" oh i had a dream oh so did i oh, wow. that's it so it's completely changed emphasis and that the business about killing the children is not in the, in the original story mm. and it's almost like the parents getting their revenge on the children who killed them in the first story isn't it yes it's a reversal mm. isn't it in, in a number of ways mm. but i mean it's presumably set some time after 4187 because doesn't he say do you remember in forty one eighty seven when the gas cloud uh, came along and only the people in the highest mountain survived? It's still your info dump thing, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is a good example of that. Although well, there was less of that in this one than there was in the other one, but yes indeed. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. She should said, Yes, of course I do. Why are you telling me? Um, <laughs> 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 but it's a kind of it's a sort of it's a weird story, it's a very downbeat story, isn't it? So not only have they chosen this story from the book, they've changed it to make it kind of depressing.
1: There are some things I really like about it, though. And I noticed there was some sort of... Eden restored elements in there to go along with this sort of cult Mm. thing uh, this sort of religious cult that seems to have taken over the world, they're borrowing the the biblical things here, Mm. so you have um, Isaiah's vision of the lion shall lie with the lamb Mm. strangely we get a tiger just sitting by their tent door, Mm. totally benign and at a later Mm. stage we have a lot of sheep outside, as if the the lion and the tiger and the sheep are quite happily coexisting, so this is Edenic in a sense, and I love the fact fact that that tiger also, of course, connotes the lions of the veldt the in the first story. Yep. And there's also a vulture sitting in the tree, and there, there were vultures in that first story as well. Yep. But again, the, the vultures just sitting there as a reminder of that first story. I love little things like that. It's uh, mm. sort of surreal, but also connects things up at the same time.
0: Yeah, somebody's making an effort, aren't they, to connect these stories together, which is
1: good. They are. Um, mm. It makes you want to think there's more to it than perhaps there is. Mm, yeah. What's the depth of this, and when you Think about it hard;
0: you still don't, you still don't get there. Uh, well, they've chosen, as I say, one of the least stories in the in the anthology to make into this, and so they've had to add something to make it work.
2: Mm. Mm.
0: I mean, can I quickly go through the other stories very quickly that are in the anthology?
1: Well, I don't want to lose. Okay, okay, that you can. But I did want to just. Just yeah, pursue yeah, yeah. before we lose this altogether. whether you both agree with me, Um mm-hmm. I was trying to make some sort of observation about this in connection to the first, you know, the Veldt, the story, as being this kind of mirror image of that. So if the first one was a sort of technocracy that is inhuman and produces inhuman results, this struck me as a sort of weird almost environmental religious cult that had taken over the world. And they were obviously Mm -hmm. one with nature, weren't they? You know, nature had somehow been tamed, and they were living just out in a field with a tent. There was all those sorts of Mm -hmm. connotations there. But it was some sort of death cult, um mm. they must be technologically sophisticated to have got this far but they choose to live in a simplicity mm. and yet at the same time they're deeply superstitious they're ruled by these weird visions um and this strange forum of men um, well i think that's probably key isn't yeah, it? and they're, they're bound by the decisions of the forum
0: and but isn't that key to know, it because it's men who make the decision it's the man who's killed the children in error Uh and then going back to the the framing story it's the woman who's really manipulated the man hasn't she and she's carved all these images on him and then vanished and it's almost like it's the women who are really the ones who who know what's going on who are in charge and left to the men they get it wrong do you think there's an element of, of that in there
1: um I don't know because I mean, this witch character, this woman who, in a sense, is sort of in control of the whole film, um, she herself is not a, a morally upright character, is she? She's a very controlling, mm. demonised sort of character. So I don't think men or women come out of this yeah. world, well, do they? And, and <laughs> then
0: that knowing look yeah. at the end. Anybody,
1: yeah. nobody comes out of this world. <laughs> nobody <laughs>
0: comes out of the story. No. And of course, so after the last story, then I can't remember where it fits in when you get the last scene of him in the house. And the house vanishing. Is that after the last story?
1: Maybe. That's one of these flashbacks, isn't it? Explaining yes. The illustrated man is explaining how he got his illustrations on his body. And he's been talking about this woman who's done all these illustrations over the days and weeks that he's been going to see her. And in the end... He's like this trophy lying on the sofa, and she's admiring him. And uh, she says, "Oh, I'll be back in a minute." And she goes out, I think to the loo or something outside.
0: To the loo, yes, <laughs> yes.
1: And, and and she doesn't though. She she goes out there and she calls to him. Yeah. And he he wanders out naked again. <laughs> that theme comes up yeah, again, and out it. he goes. Um, and because he doesn't find her there, and then he looks back. Mm. And the house is gone, mm. and all that's remaining is a single kitchen chair with his clothes draped over. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic moment. I love that moment.
0: It's a film. very good moment. I'm, I'd had to watch that twice because I thought it was all in, done in one shot. It's very clever. It's not. It, he leaves the house, uh-huh. then there's a cut to him leaving. Like the, You can just see the wall of the house. Then All in one shot, he goes to the outside loo, then the camera pans back and the house is gone. But um, it's very, very effective. Very, yes. very well done.
1: It is. And the music at that point is excellent as well. Yeah. It's it's also. Yeah, yeah, tremendous. It's funny.
0: In the book, he actually says she's gone back to the future. (laughs) That's
1: right. Which brings us to the question is it the future? It isn't the future, is it? He says she's from the future. Yeah. But it's not at all clear to me that she is. She's from this sort of other world. I mean, there's an interview with Rod Steiger by Roger Ebert from 1968. And Steiger says something very interesting here. He says that. um, Okay, Ebert's writing. The tattoos, he he said, that is, Steiger said, uh, tell of the fate and destiny of man. But then Steiger thought that line over and shook his head. Nah, he said. I don't want to get all intellectual about this. What the hell? The tattoos tell the future. And when you look into them, you're carried into other times, other worlds. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yes, actually. I mean, you've said it's about the future, but yeah, you've picked up on that as well. It's about other times and other worlds. This is almost like possible worlds or something weird like that mm. isn't it where these same characters appear in other versions of themselves in other worlds and other times corresponding to those other worlds that are sort of future-like relative to the main narrative mm. really weird but that's suitably weird i think mm. for the whole notion of these tattoo images that can grab you and possess you and take you into them so mm. You know, it's unsatisfactory intellectually because you can't make sense of it. But maybe that's the point. Maybe you're not supposed to make sense of it.
0: Mm. I mean, there's a couple of good stories. There's a few stories. You asked me to pick out one or two from the the anthology they didn't use. Yes. Yes. Um, There's one called Kaleidoscope, which starts with a ship having exploded. And these astronauts are being flung out into space shooting away from each other in different directions and they're gradually, they've only got a few hours left of communication and somebody suddenly finds themselves among a meteor shower and is carried along by meteors and yet another person realises that they're, they're going to become a shooting star because they're going to land on Earth but they'll burn up and some child will look up and see them. And of course if you know the film Dark Star, uh, the end of Dark Star, they cheerfully admit to have stolen that Ending from the Ray Bradbury story, hmm. where the characters are flung out of a, yeah. a spaceship at the end, and exactly the same thing happens. There's a great story in there called "The Man," where a rocket lands from Earth onto this planet uh, millions of miles away, and the, and I think it's like a sort of an old-fashioned. Uh, I don't know; it's a medieval town. It's not really described, and no one's interested in seeing that these people, these aliens, at all. And they say well, "Why? Because this man has appeared, and this man has been healing people and healing the sick, and the, and, and everything." And they realise. They've arrived just after Jesus has appeared, but Jesus has gone on to another planet. And then they kind of think, oh, we'll go on to another planet, but they'll miss him by a day and by an hour. And so that, that would have been an interesting story, I think. Mm. A bit expensive, perhaps. <laughs> um, and there's the key. Yep. <laughs> there's, a key. There's, there's, a, there's one called um, The Fox and the Forest, which is about a couple who come back in time from the future because the future's so awful. They can only escape it by coming back and literally escaping into the past and they end up in 1938 Mexico. And there are these other people, these agents who have come been come back sent to try and find them. Again, that sort of links in with the futuristic side of the film, but a bit expensive, <laughs> perhaps. Mm-hmm. There's a lovely, <laughs> yeah. slightly amusing story about called marionette Inc, where a company can uh, reproduce you. Uh, if you pay them money, they will create a robot of you that then can go to your house and be with your wife while you go off and do whatever you want, and etc. And that's that's a that's a that's a brilliant little story. Stepford Wives. Yeah, that? yeah, it's a lovely. A lovely twist um and the last one i think has a brilliant story called zero hour which has all the children around the world or certainly all the children in the story that their parents talking about it saying these children are all playing the same game there's this person they've invented called drill and he's he's in another dimension it's such a silly game and they have to put together this strange instrument so he can come through from this other dimension weird isn't it and this and so basically it's an alien invasion that they've captured the minds of all the children and playing games and have, have opened up this mm. portal to another dimension Again, it's understated. It's very understated, and it's creepy. Mm-hmm. So I think it, I think it's odd the stories they have chosen, mm. especially yeah, if you like the rains, the one because that is a very big budget story, isn't it? They've really gone to town on that one, and the Velt, I suppose, in the sense uh, because that house. That sort of white Spartan house is quite effective. Mm. last story they haven't bothered with. Uh, no, maybe they ran out of money and thought, well, we'll have to have that particular... They possibly. <laughs> they, yeah, possibly. I find it frustrating yeah. looking at the original stories and seeing the wealth of yeah. imagination. I think it's frustrating.
1: You're obviously recommending the book a lot more than you are the film. Yeah. Which is, I which is so. fair yeah. enough. But, I, you know, I, I think we're all recommending both Um, certainly people should if you haven't seen this film please do see it and I think in some ways it's quite a good one to watch at the moment when the world is such an incredibly confusing place with what's going on at the moment because I find it quite cathartic sometimes to watch something that's equally confusing because it makes you think (laughs) well reality isn't quite that bad after all is it that sort of thing Um, but just returning to this business about you know is there a main message do either of you have any thoughts on an overall message or messages that can be drawn from this film rather than the book
2: i don't think there's any real one solid story they're trying to tell necessarily i think what they're trying to do just for what i picked up from you know the the framing story and then the three sub stories i think they're just trying to show you the, like uh, snapshots of the uh, human condition in some sense because hmm. you know you, you see the darker side of children in the belt you see hmm. the darker side of uh you know in the third story you see the darker side of um just listening to the authority figures when they yeah. turn out to be completely wrong and then the the Venus story, I'm not sure what they're trying to show there. Other but you do see, you know, human nature on display in a survival scenario, you know, and how people will have conflict with each other in a survival situation or they can work together. So I think if you're looking for like an overarching theme, I I, I think you're interesting to pick up on the belt and the the last night of the world that mirroring each other. That's cool. But I think overall they're just trying to show us like snapshots of human nature and what um, possible future scenarios might give us. Um, right. And human nature isn't going to change necessarily with the technology.
1: Mm. I think you're spot on with that, because I think one of the things it's asking is, you know, what kind of future do we want, given that human nature is as it is? I mean, are we going to ignore the darker side of human nature, pretend that we're all mm-hmm. we're all wonderful and good deep down, really? But actually, as we conceive of the future, we should be aware that we are mixed bags <laughs> very definitely mm. and not go for utopian visions, which are just going to go wrong and bring out the darker side. I and mean, that's something which I take from it.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, they're, they're all such different stories, you know, and you're, you're trying to pick apart a consistent theme and you really can't. But then when you, mm. if you think about it as it's, Oh, well, human nature is human nature, you know, mm. technology doesn't really change it a whole lot. Mm. You know, I think that's the main takeaway.
0: Mm. I mean, I'd have to agree with you, Frank, it's a hard one because any anthology film, and I quite like these sort of horror anthology films, Tales from the Vaults and et cetera, where they have four self-contained stories. Thematically, it's often that they're different themes and different stories. So it's I think you've done you've you've done the best job in your summing up, I think. But um, I suppose anti-technocracy Perhaps would be one of the key themes mm. in terms of the short stories. Yeah. With the illustrated man story being really sort of pure fantasy. Mm. Um you don't know how the film ends because it ends with him just running away, doesn't it?
1: Yes, that's right. But
0: you could almost imagine it going to black and then it coming up and him just waking up, and he's just been asleep there. You know, he's fallen asleep by the by <laughs> the good. by the lake, and that's that. that would be which perfect. would be
1: terrible if they did that, but uh,
0: yes, it would be it would be in keeping with the rest of the film. I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, with that with that last bit though, you could see like um, these skin illustrations are telling possible futures. I mean, if you want to give one last thing for the framing story, like he's seen all these possible futures, right, of the Velt and the other couple of stories. And then he knows that they can't all be true because they're all different futures. Mm-hmm. So then he sees himself getting strangled by the illustrated man. And then he tries to prevent that. But in preventing it, he may or may not have actually initiated that. So Well, he's actually, he, he, he's, that's exactly,
0: mm-hmm. isn't it the same as the last story? where yeah. the, the man heard this yes. pronouncement and then acted on it, and the pronouncement was wrong. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah. that's yeah, it's actually very similar, it
2: isn't it? Self fulfilling purpose. Mm, in the case. Totally, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And isn't there something of that in the book as well? With Is it a bunch of dwarves or something that beats him?
2: Well,
0: this is in the short story <laughs> that's not in the anthology. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The patch of bear skin on his back reveals the fact that I think he's killed his wife which he does because they have an argument. Then the dwarfs sort of run after him. And then as they beat him to death, they see on his, there's a two patches on his back. The other patch shows them beating, beating him to death. And in that tattoo, there's a <laughs> yes. tattoo of him being beaten. It goes on and sort of. Inc- mm. Ad
1: infinitum. Yes. It, exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean, at, at the end of the book, at the end of the series of novels, the young man sees on the illustrated man's back. It's just one page at the end. He sees the illustrated man strangling him. So he just runs off. <laughs> He doesn't kill him mm. or anything. He just runs away and that's how the book ends. Yeah. Just sort of disappearing off into the moonlight.
1: Mm. Which is where he just runs away and we don't know we
0: don't know what happens ultimately. No, but he's run away after he's tried to kill him, so the the illustrated man is out for revenge.
1: Yes, uh, okay. full of questions. We haven't answered any questions, really, have we? And I guess that's what the <laughs> film invites us to do, is to ask the questions and be unfulfilled at the end, but to have enjoyed the experience, both of talking about it and watching it. Now I mean, certainly, I, as I said this before, and I say it again, I do highly recommend this film. It's a must-watch. There's so much in there that is interesting. It has its weaknesses, which we've discussed <laughs> at length, but very many strengths as well. It really does have a cult status. It's a very unusual film, and I've enjoyed watching it again, in its totality for the first time ever Mm. um Mm -hmm. during this time it's sort of given me that weird cathartic sense of it's not so bad after all um but yeah it's a great film in my view but uh i take your points there mark in particular and also frank to some extent that it does have these weaknesses which i do agree anyway thank you ever so much for coming on both of you yet again to talk about this i've enjoyed it very much um do you have any parting thoughts about this or anything else before we uh sign off today
0: Um, Go away and read Ray Bradbury. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) If you haven't read any, then The Illustrated Man is a brilliant collection. The Martian Chronicles is a brilliant collection. Uh, I would start with either of those two and uh, dip your toe into the the waters of Ray Bradbury.
1: I must say, though, Mark, did you see the dramatisation of that with Rock Hudson? I did, I
0: did. Did you like it? Well, I thought it was better. I've I've seen it, I've got it on DVD, and I, I think it's flawed. But I think it actually conjures up the stories m- in a much better way than this yeah. film i'm afraid
1: Fair enough. the weird thing is I saw some of those and it. they didn't grab me, but they no. didn't know the stories. they are just the production yeah. didn't grab me' sort of long mm. and tedious
0: and- yeah. yeah yeah but it's not' it's, I'm not it's not brilliant or anything, but I think it's better, but it's very I'm saying to frank it's very, very hard to actually turn these stories into films, yeah because they are so wordy and because if you have characters speaking the lines that Ray Bradbury writes, they come over as ridiculous, pretentious, and you think people don't talk like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, equally, if you try and visualise it, it's very, very hard, which is why there have been very few adaptations of bradbury which is what i like because that's where they exist on the page better than Uh on the screen
1: (laughs) right yeah very very tricky stuff
0: go on then frank i'm going to give you the last word i don't know whether
1: you want the last word but you're going to have it anyway (laughs) (laughs) any pearls of wisdom to end with
2: no I, i would recommend anybody who wants to see a thought provoking movie to go check it out um i've tried reading a couple of bradbury things including martian chronicles couldn't get into it um but I may give the Illustrated Man collection a try because uh, Bradbury is a good writer. But I he's you have to be like in the right frame of mind to read him, I think. And I, I think it's worth <laughs> yes. trying, anyways, yeah. you know. So I met him in 1990. Did you? Oh, um, wow!
0: Uh-huh.
2: And I I never asked him about
0: this film, unfortunately. Oh. But <laughs> <laughs> I met him at a book launch, and I couldn't believe it because I always thought he didn't travel. He never liked planes, but he came over to the UK for his 70th birthday i think so it was i was i was blown away by the meeting this childhood hero of mine yes yeah, mm-hmm. amazing sure. oh what a great note to end on fantastic <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well thank you
1: again both of you for chatting about this uh, great discussion i uh, don't know where we're going next maybe fahrenheit 451 in due course but uh, i shall uh, get back in touch with both of you um, thank you very much for coming on great discussion thank you thanks julian